Research podcast number 209. Today, we'll talk about research involving words for food in your mouth. Feel free to put food in your mouth while you listen to that if you want to put food in your mouth while you listen to that. An apple a day to improve sex life. Eat a shrew and an epidemic of penile amputations. Reaction to chicken nuggets. Some research studies done by Ig Nobel Prize winners, in addition to their prize winning work. What matters in NBA basketball games, why spaghetti, and what your gut says psychoanalytically. Yes, all of that. This, this, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless, compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear, and we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you can get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, and even copies of the Annals of Improbable Research magazine. Details are at www.patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website, Improbable.com. Words for food in your mouth with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. There's no accounting for tastes, goes the old saying. An Australian study tried to, well, account for taste. Texture and chemical feeling descriptors that 6 to 11 year olds and adults associate with food in the mouth by N. Oram, published in the Journal of Texture Studies in 1998. The author at the University of Western Sydney, Australia, reports, Subjects judged if 126 food words, for instance, chewy, 10 non-food words, for instance, jump, and 10 non-words, for instance, frump, spelled F-R-U-N-P, were used to talk about food in the mouth. The only other study focusing on food texture and children is by Chesniak in 1972. She noted that 3- to 12-year-olds usually preferred food that was chewy, firm, and or rough, and disliked food that was soft, mushy, pulpy, and or smooth. The texture characteristics that teenagers reported liking most were chewy, creamy, crisp, crisp outside, soft inside, crunchy, hard, juicy, mushy, smooth, velvety, and soft. In contrast, coarse, dry, grainy, lumpy, hard, mushy, rough, slimy, soft, stringy, and tough were the most disliked attributes for this age group. Szczesniak's study only provided information about the vocabulary of food texture for teenagers. The present study deals with an overview of this vocabulary for 6- to 11-year-olds and compares it to that of adults. 
Words may first be associated with a small number of typical food items, then generalized to a larger set of foods, and finally connected to the superordinate category label, food. This effect may also occur for adults with words like slithery, which was judged as a non-food word by 69% of adults. They may agree that slithery describes oysters and tripe and not uncooked carrots. Some words may only be associated with specific foods by children. Grade 1 children associated greasy and tender with hot chips and meat, respectively, but not with the label food. 96% of grade 1 children judge juicy as a food word, but they may have also judged dry bread as juicy. Except for greasy and tender with grade 1, the study provided no information about what foods are associated with which descriptors by children. This latter issue will be focused on in my next study on this topic. Apples. An apple a day might improve a woman's sex life, they say, with improbable dramatic readings by Chris Kotsipas. A team of 15 medical researchers in Italy inquired into the sex lives of 731 women and did an experiment with those women. They were trying to see whether eating an apple a day would improve those women's sexual experiences. The researchers wrote a study explaining, perhaps a bit proudly, what they had done. The study is Apple Consumption is Related to Better Sexual Quality of Life in Young Women by Tommaso Cai, Mauro Gacci, Fulvio Mattivi, Nicola Montaini, Serena Migno, Vieri Bodi, Paolo Gacci, Beatrice Detti, Paolo Gontero, Stefano Ciodini, Liliana Mereo, Saverio Tateo, Sandra Mazzoli, Gianni Malosini, and Riccardo Bartoletti published in the Archives of Gynecology and Obstetrics in 2014. What again is the title of that study? Apple consumption is related to better sexual quality of life in young women. And who wrote it? Tommaso Gai, Mauro Gacci, Fulvio Mativi, Nicola Mondaini, Serina Migno, Vieri Bodi, Paolo Gacci, Beatrice Detti, Paolo Gontero, Stefano Ciodini, Liliana Mereu, Saverio Tateo, Sandra Mazzoli, Gianni Malossini... And Riccardo Bartoletti. The researchers first, in a rather roundabout way, talk about why they decided to look at apples and sex. Several studies suggested that some foods could have an intriguing impact on female sexual quality of life. They give an example. Recently, a researcher named Mondaini found that moderate intake of red wine is associated with higher amounts of sexual desire, lubrication, and overall sexual function as compared to teetotaler status. What was the name of that researcher? Mondaini. And then the researchers give another example. A researcher named Salonia showed that those women who reported eating at least one chocolate cube daily have higher amounts of both sexual desire and overall sexual function than women who did not report eating chocolate. What was the name of that researcher? Salonia. Then these researchers get to the point. However, to the best of our knowledge, there is a lack of studies regarding the potential correlation between daily apple intake and women's sexual function. The aim of the present study is to evaluate if there is a tie between daily apple intake and sexual function in a sample of healthy, young, sexually active Italian women. Then the researchers got some women. We recruited 731 women. They have an average age of 31.9, living in both Tuscany and Trentino Alto Adige. That's an average age of 31.9 years? I assume so. The paper is silent on that point. And where were they living? In Tuscany and Trentino Alto Adige. Then the researchers asked each of the women whether they eat at least an apple a day. Some of those women did eat at least an apple a day. 
Others did not. All patients were then split into two groups in accordance with their daily apple intake. Group A, regular daily apple consumption, and Group B, no regular daily apple consumption. That is, they ate less than one apple per day. The researchers were not very picky about the apples. No data about the apple type preferred were collected due to the difficulty in obtaining this type of information. The researchers were picky, though, very picky as to the apple eaters. We only enrolled women who declared that they had eaten an apple without peeling it. The researchers were principled, very principled. The study was conducted in accordance with the principles of research involving human subjects as expressed in the Declaration of Helsinki. Participation was voluntary and anonymous. The researchers were scrupulous, very scrupulous, about which women they allowed to be part of the study. Patients' characteristics consisted of age between 18 and 45 years, premenopausal status, absence of comorbidities, no medical treatments for pain, no genital anatomical deformity, no previous genitourinary surgery, no prescription drug use, regular sex life, and singular sex partner during the last three months. Very, very scrupulous. Moreover, all women who were symptomatic for an already known urinary or genital infection, or who had a medical history of vulvar itching, fissures, abnormal discharge, and persistent pain at intercourse, were also excluded. Very, very, very scrupulous. All women using or initiating antidepressant, anxiolytic, or other psychotropic medications were excluded too. The researchers asked, seeking as much precision as possible, about six aspects of the women's sex lives. Desire? arousal, lubrification, orgasm, satisfaction, pain. Which six aspects were those, Chris? Desire, arousal, lubrification, orgasm, satisfaction, and pain. And if read in the opposite order, which six would that be? Pain, satisfaction, orgasm, lubrification, arousal, and desire. Here's what the researchers say they discovered. Group A, the apple eaters, had significantly higher total ratings and lubrication ratings than participants in Group B, the ones who did not eat at least an apple a day. But some things apparently never change. No significant differences between the two groups were observed concerning desire, sexual arousal, satisfaction, pain, and orgasm. Having collected their data, the researchers then try to make sense of it. The correlation between daily apple intake and higher ratings for lubrication and overall sexual function, as compared to those who did not report eating apples, is intriguing. Intriguing? Intriguing. Having gone that far in their analysis, the researchers then seem to gain confidence and make a stronger-sounding statement. Even if these findings need to be interpreted with some caution, due to the small number of women, self-reported data and the lack of laboratory exams, it nevertheless suggests the presence of a relationship between daily apple use and a better sexual function. Having made a stronger-sounding statement, the researchers then venture to hint at leaping boldly into the future. It might be interesting to evaluate whether apple peel has a modifying effect on female sexual quality of life. It should be the aim of a future study. Having ventured to hint at leaping boldly into the future, the researchers then appear to calm down and become maybe even a bit timid. However, further studies will be necessary to clarify all molecular mechanisms involving the relationship between apple intake and female sexuality. Further epidemiological investigations prospectively evaluating larger cohort populations of women are needed to confirm the precise role of apple intake in the context of female sexual response. That's the precise role of apple intake in the context of female sexual response? Yes. That's the precise role of apple intake in the context of female sexual response. Then, at the very end, the researchers rouse themselves and make a sort of strong declaration. Although these findings need to be interpreted with some caution, 
daily apple intake could improve sexual quality of life in sexually active young women. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize winners with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. The prizes, as you know, honor achievements that make people laugh, then think. Today, let's look at the other things that won prizes in that year, 2013. The ceremony that year happened at Harvard, as usual, in Sanders Theater. Ceremonies webcast live, and nearly all of the winners came at their own expense. Several Nobel laureates were there on the stage, physically presenting the Ig Nobel Prizes to the Ig Nobel Prize winners. All right, let's take a look. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to Shinsuke Imai, Nabuuki Tsuga, Muniaki Tomotake, Yushiaki Nagatome, H. Sawada, Toshiyuki Nagata, and Hidehiko Kumgai for discovering that the biochemical process by which onions make people cry is even more complicated than scientists had previously realized. They described it, these scientists did, in a study. An onion enzyme that makes the eyes water, published in the journal Nature in 2002. The study says, The irritating lacrimatory factor, the word lacrimatory means tending to cause tears, the irritating lacrimatory factor that is released by onions when they are chopped up has been presumed to be produced spontaneously following the action of the enzyme alanase, which operates in the biochemical pathway that produces the compounds responsible for the onion's characteristic flavor. Gene, can I interrupt for a second? Have you ever in your life in conversation used that word lacrimatory? Uh, I, I I haven't, but oh, I, we, now when I go to sad movies, I'm going to use it. Oh, there's a cat attacking us. There's That's a the cat. Sound is. He's speaking Let's proceed. Well. <laughs> I guess we have to stop there. <laughs> well, that was exciting. Gene's cat just jumped onto the table <laughs> and, yes. and turned the machine off. We've we've got the recorder going again, and uh, and uh, let's try to remember what we were doing. Oh, yeah. So, Gene, I, I wanted to ask you, that word lacrimatory, is that a word that you have ever in your life used in conversation? I, I've not used it, but I will certainly use it the next time I go to a very sad movie. Okay, try to keep that cat under control. Okay, cat, he, he's just sitting here. He's, he's, a good he's less than one foot from the microphone on top of some of your papers yes, here. Yes, and he's all wet. Okay, all well, right. let, let's continue all here. Right. All right, so here we show that this factor is not formed as a byproduct of this reaction, but that it is specifically synthesized by a previously undiscovered enzyme, lacrimatory factor synthase. It may be possible to develop a non-lacrimatory onion that still retains its characteristic flavor at... The cat just bit me. I'm very sorry. If you're listening to this, the cat is now rolling over. That's its bell sound, and it's attacking Jean's free hand. It may be possible to develop a non-lacrimatory onion that still retains its characteristic flavor and high nutritional value by down-regulating the activity of this synthase enzyme. The cat is now rolling over again. Let's continue onward. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Archaeology was awarded to Brian Crandall and Peter Stahl of Canada and the U.S. for parboiling a dead sh- foster stop chewing up the 
Ostrich decided to destroy our papers. The Archaeology Prize in 2013 was awarded to Brian Crandall and Foster and Peter Stahl for parboiling a dead shrew and then... Sw- <laughs> I, that I think he down. has to go. He's well, going to just... Let's try to get through this prize first, okay? All right. For parboiling a dead shrew and then swallowing the shrew without chewing, and then carefully examining everything excreted during subsequent days, all so they could see which bones would dissolve inside the human digestive system and which bones would not. They described it in a study. Human Digestive Effects in a Micromammalian Skeleton, published in the Journal of Archaeological Science in 1995. I fear that the cat is scratching up all of our papers. That's true. Let's try to ignore that and continue. Okay. All right. Now, that study is really all about how to explain piles of old bones. Old bones are not always easy to explain. Even when the buried remains of small mammals are purposely recovered and analyzed, most archaeologists approach their interpretation with some trepidation. Archaeologists, some of them, have tried to gather reliable information about what happens in the long run to an animal's bones after that animal was eaten by another animal. Human digestive effects on fish bones have been described. However, we are in need of comparative data. This particular study tells the perhaps gory details of what happened to the bones of one animal, in this case a shrew, after another animal, in this case a human being, ate it. Our study involved the consumption of a skinned, eviscerated, and segmented insectivore by an adult human male, followed by the recovery and examination of related fecal contents. Northern short-tailed shrews, Blarinia brevicauda, were procured. Jean, did you ever eat a uh, northern short-tailed shrew? I, I would not eat a short-tailed shrew. I didn't ask you if you would. I asked you if you I have. have. Not. I don't eat shrews. I know some shrews, but they're never, not edible. You have never eaten a shrew. I've never eaten a shrew. To your knowledge. I've argued with a shrew. The scientists carefully prepared the food. They wanted the person who was going to eat this shrew, to be able to ingest the whole thing without chewing. The shrew was skinned and eviscerated. The carcass was lightly boiled for approximately two minutes and swallowed without mastication in the hind and forelimb, head and body and tail portions. One of the scientists, the study does not say which one, ate the shrew. Then it was time to collect the data. Fecal matter was collected for the following three days. Each feces was stirred in a pan of warm water until completely disintegrated. Uh, This solution was then decanted through a quadruple-layered cheesecloth mesh. Sieved contents were rinsed with a dilute detergent solution and examined with a hand lens for bone remains. All specimens were cleaned and fixed by immersion in alcohol. Selected specimens were subsequently viewed under scanning electron microscopy. That data, almost all of it in the form of bones or bone fragments, arrived. But some of it took a while before it arrived. The majority of recovered bone specimens appeared in the first fecal collection. Very little material, including a molar and one humerus, were present in the second collection. 
No bone specimens were recovered in feces from the third day when food remains from subsequent meals became obvious. Our analysis is primarily focused on skeletal representation and digestive damage. There was a surprise. In general, only the biggest bones arrived at all, and some of those were in worse shape than the scientists had expected. Results. There was significant skeletal attrition, as only 28 bone elements and fragments appear to have survived the digestive process. Considering the total number of elements in the entire shrew skeleton, this represents a proportionately low survivorship of bones. We note the unexpectedly complete absence of both hip and femoral elements within the fecal sample. Even the thick, bony skull suffered damage in its journey in one end of a scientist through the scientist's entire digestive system and then out the other end of the scientist. The relatively high percentage of loose teeth and total destruction of the characteristically prominent procumbent incisors at all premolars are indicative of the overall heavy degree of digestive damage. The shrew skull was not only ingested in our experiment, but swallowed intact. Nonetheless, damage to the skull is extreme. In addition to one isolated cranial fragment, both palatal portions of the maxillae are all that survived digestion. Only a small fraction of isolated molars and no incisors or premolars were recovered. The study sums it up neatly. The digestive system of mammalian predators, in this particular case humans, appears to severely destroy and weaken the bones of small prey items, even when swallowed relatively intact. The 2013 Ig Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Alexander Lukashenko, president of Belarus, for making it illegal to applaud in public, and awarded to the Belarus State Police for arresting a one-armed man for applauding. We don't have any studies to read to you about that because they did not publish any studies. They're not scientists, but there are lots and lots of news reports that you can easily look up, including an interview several weeks after the Ig Nobel ceremony. Some reporter tracked down that one-armed man who was delighted that this prize was awarded to President Lukashenko. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Probability was awarded to Bert Tolkamp, Marie Haskell, Fritha Langford, David Roberts, and Colin Morgan. They're from the UK, the Netherlands, and Canada. They were awarded a prize for making two related discoveries. First, that the longer a cow has been lying down, the more likely that cow will soon stand up. And second, that once a cow stands up, you cannot easily predict how soon that cow will lie down again. They described it in a study. Are cows more likely to lie down the longer they stand? Published in the journal Applied Animal Behavior Science in 2010. The study explains succinctly what the scientists did. Datasets on lying and standing behavior were collected from cows with sensors fitted to the leg. Data were obtained with 10 late pregnant indoor house beef cows, experiment 1, 19 outwintered beef cows, experiment 2, and 44 housed lactating dairy cows that were milked three times daily, experiment 3. 
During part of the experiment, video footage was recorded to validate the sensor records. The scientists went into this with some expectations. Data were analyzed to test two hypotheses. These hypotheses were that, one, the probability of cows standing up would increase with the length of time the animal had been lying down, and two, the probability of cows lying down would increase with the length of time the animal had been standing. A total of 10,814, 39,089, and 9,405 lying episodes were recorded by the sensors in experiments 1 to 3, respectively. The measurements told a pretty clear picture about each of those two hypotheses. The probability of cows standing up within the next 15 minutes increased with lying time in all experiments, which was consistent with the first hypothesis. The probability of cows lying down within the next 15 minutes did not significantly increase with standing time. Our second hypothesis was therefore refuted because cows were not more likely to lie down the longer they had been standing. The scientists acknowledged that in the wake of this experiment, there's still some mystery about the lying and standing behavior of cows. Considerable variation in individual lying behavior existed. Around a quarter of the dairy cows had daily lying times of 11 hours or longer. It is not immediately clear, however, why the majority of dairy cows lay down less than 11 hours a day. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Public Health was awarded to Kassian Bananganada, Tu Chayavatana, Chumporn Ponangkal, Ananton Makayakol, Piasakol Sakol Satayadorn, Krit Komaratal, and Henry Wilde, and I apologize to all of them for whatever damage I did to their names. It was awarded jointly to all of those people who were in Thailand for the medical techniques described in their report called Surgical Management of an Epidemic of Penile Amputations in Siam. Techniques which they recommend, except in cases where the amputated penis has been partially eaten by a duck. They described all this in a study. Surgical Management of an Epidemic of Penile Amputations in Siam, published in the American Journal of Surgery in 1983. The study says... A valued Siamese behavioral trait involves suppressing anger and avoiding confrontation. Reports of violent attacks by wives against philandering husbands in Thailand's press demonstrate that this trait has its limits. It became fashionable in the decades after 1970 for the humiliated Thai wife to wait until her husband fell asleep so that she could quickly sever his penis with a kitchen knife. A traditional Thai home is elevated on pilings, and the windows are open to allow for ventilation. The area under the house is the home of the family pigs, chickens, and ducks. Thus, it is quite usual that an amputated penis is tossed out of an open window where it may be captured by a duck. Could you repeat that last sentence in case there are people who are not sure they heard what they heard? Thus, it is quite usual that an amputated penis is tossed out of an open window where it may be captured by a duck. Thank you for repeating that. Onward. 
The Thai saying, I better get home or the ducks will have something to eat, is therefore a common joke and immediately understood at all levels of society. How did the epidemic arise? The Thai epidemic of penile amputation started around 1973 and peaked in 1977. It was fueled by graphic press reports, including at least one series of interviews with prominent Thai women who almost unanimously stated that they endorsed this method of retribution. A survey of surgeons at major Bangkok, Kong Khon, and Chiang Mai hospitals resulted in an estimate of 100 such incidents between 1973 and 1980. A considerable amount of expertise in managing penile amputations has therefore evolved throughout the kingdom's medical centers. The doctors decided to share their expertise. This is a report of the Siri Raj Hospital Trauma Division's experience with 18 attempted reanastomoses, that is, reattachments of amputated penises. There were 18 amputations and reimplantations. Efforts were therefore made to develop a simple and standard technique of management that could be performed by any general surgeon. The procedure involves some preparation. Preparation of the amputated specimen. The time elapsed between amputation and arrival at the emergency room was usually between 30 minutes and 2 hours. The specimen was presented in various forms, wrapped in a handkerchief, in pieces of newspaper, in a banana leaf, or in a plastic bag full of ice. All specimens were grossly contaminated. Preparation of the patient. An effort was made to reassure the patient and to explain to him that he could anticipate prolonged hospitalization, but that a reasonably successful outcome could be expected. A reasonably successful outcome could be expected. In handling these cases, the doctors noticed some trends. Angry wives seemed to favor the kitchen knife as an instrument for amputation. Amputation was total in nine of the wife-inflicted cases and often included parts of the scrotum. Testimony to the fact that the attacking wives had luen yin, cold blood, when they decided to act. Only four attacks left a short penile stump. There was, however, no apparent difference in the surgical and functional results between patients who had total amputations and those who had partial amputations. There was a significantly shorter and less stormy hospital course in the last four patients described in this report when ample experience had developed in management and the scrotal burrowing technique of McRoberts et al. was used. The aftermath, says the report as it wraps up, was also notable. Interestingly, none of our patients filed a criminal complaint against their attackers. Thank you for reading this, Jean. It's not my kind of thing. Oh. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Reaction to Chicken Nuggets with an improbable dramatic reading by Kishore Hari.
The vast medical research literature contains only a few published reports concerning chicken nuggets. Here's one of them. Reaction to chicken nuggets in a patient taking an MAOI, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, by R. Pohl, R. Ballon, and R. Bershou, published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 1988. The authors in Detroit, Michigan, report... A number of foods are known to provoke a hypertensive reaction in patients taking a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, MAOI. To our knowledge, the following is the first case of a possible reaction to chicken prepared in nugget form. Mr. A, a 24-year-old white man, had been having panic attacks since the age of 14. Because his attacks did not respond to up to 350 milligrams per day of imipramine, his medication was changed to phenylzine. He carefully followed prescribed dietary restrictions and did not complain of any side effects. However, Mr. A reported a reaction after eating chicken nuggets at a restaurant. A few minutes after eating, he felt a pressure in his stomach, followed by a severe throbbing vascular headache in his temples. At the same time, he was aware of his heart racing and pounding. These symptoms peaked after 15 minutes and then subsided over the following hour without medical attention. He felt that this episode was quite unlike his panic attacks. Mr. A called the restaurant in an attempt to discover whether any prescribed substance had been present in his meal. He was told that monosodium glutamate, an item on his list of dietary restrictions, had been added to the chicken. He himself had observed that the chicken nuggets he ate at the restaurant were spicier than chicken nuggets he had eaten in other restaurants. He did not attempt to eat chicken nuggets again. Ig and Beyond. Some further research adventures of Ig Nobel Prize winners with dramatic readings by Bruce Petschek. The Tortoise and the Touchscreen. The 2011 Ig Nobel Prize for Physiology was awarded to Anna Wilkinson, Natalie Sabans, Isabella Mandel, and Ludwig Uber for their study, No Evidence of Contagious Yawning in the Red-Footed Tortoise. In 2014, Wilkinson, Uber, and several other colleagues published a new paper, in the journal Behavioral Processes. It's called Touch Screen Performance and Knowledge Transfer in the Red-Footed Tortoise. The authors at the University of Vienna, Austria, at the University of Lincoln, UK, at the University of York, UK, and at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, report... The present study investigated the ability of the tortoise to learn a spatial task in which the response required was simply to touch a stimulus presented in a given position on a touchscreen. Four red-footed tortoises learned to operate the touchscreen apparatus. The results show that red-footed tortoises are able to operate a touchscreen and can successfully solve a spatial two-choice task in this apparatus. Mechanics of the Lasso The 2006 Ig Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to Basile Odoli and Sebastian Neukirch for their insights into why, when you bend dry spaghetti, it often breaks into more than two pieces. Their prize-winning study is called Fragmentation of Rods by Cascading Cracks, Why Spaghetti Does Not Break in Half. In 2014, Odoli and two other colleagues published a new study in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society A. It's called An Introduction to the Mechanics of the Lasso. The authors are Pierre Thomas Brun, Neil Rieb, and Basile Odoli. They're at the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique in Paris, France. They report... 
Trick roping evolved from humble origins as a cattle-catching tool into a sport that delights audiences all over the world. With its complex patterns or tricks, its fundamental tool is the lasso, formed by passing one end of a rope through a small loop, the Honda, at the other end. Here we study the mechanics of the simplest rope trick, the flat loop, in which the rope is driven by the steady circular motion of the roper's hand in a horizontal plane. We derive the macroscopic criterion for this sliding of the Honda in terms of the microscopic Coulomb static friction criterion. Our predictions agree well with rapid camera observations of a professional trick roper and with laboratory experiments using a robo-cowboy. Chimpanzees prefer which music over silence? The 2012 Ig Nobel Prize for Anatomy was awarded to Franz Deval and Jennifer Picorni for discovering that chimpanzees can identify other chimpanzees individually from seeing photographs of their rear ends. The prize-winning study is called Faces and Behinds, Chimpanzee Sex Perception. In 2014, Duval and several other colleagues published a new paper in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. It's called Chimpanzees Prefer African and Indian Music Over Silence. The authors at Emory University and Southwestern University report... The purpose of the present study is to determine the spontaneous preference of common chimpanzees, pan troglodytes, for three acoustically contrasting types of world music, West African Akan, North Indian Raga, and Japanese Teiko. Sixteen chimpanzees housed in two groups were exposed to 40 minutes of music from a speaker placed 1.5 meters outside the fence of their outdoor enclosure. The proximity of each subject to the acoustic stimulus was recorded every two minutes. When compared with controls, subjects spent significantly more time in areas where the acoustic stimulus was loudest in African and Indian music conditions. What matters when you watch an NBA game? With an improbable dramatic reading by Gene Burko Gleason. In a basketball or football or hockey game where the lead can change hands again and again, maybe what you care about is who wins. Some physicists analyzed what happened during and over the course of many, many, many games. They found something special about one of the sports. They found out what matters. But first, here's what they thought they were looking for. Aaron Clausett and Marina Kogan of the University of Colorado and Sidney Redner of Boston University, did a study called Safe Leads and Lead Changes in Competitive Team Sports. They explain, We investigate the time evolution of lead changes within individual games of competitive team sports. Exploiting ideas from the theory of random walks, the number of lead changes within a single game follows a Gaussian distribution. We show that the probability that the last lead change and the time of the largest lead size are governed by the same arcsine law, a bimodal distribution that diverges at the start and at the end of the game. We also determine the probability that a given lead is safe as a function of its size L and game time T. 
Our analysis is based on a comprehensive data set of all points scored in league games over multiple consecutive seasons in the National Basketball Association, the NBA, all divisions of NCAA college football, the National Football League, NFL, and the National Hockey League, NHL. Our predictions generally agree with comprehensive data on more than 1.25 million scoring events in roughly 40,000 games across four professional or semi-professional team sports and are more accurate than popular heuristics currently used in sports analytics. The kicker comes towards the end of the report. When the researchers tell what they found, they point out something special about professional basketball professional basketball in the National Basketball Association. Cynically, our results suggest that one should watch only the first few and last few minutes of a professional basketball game. The rest of the game is as predictable as watching repeated coin tossings. On the other hand, the high degree of unpredictability of events in the middle of a game may be precisely what makes these games so exciting for sports fans. Why Spaghetti, with an improbable dramatic reading by Ben Lilly. Cooked spaghetti has its uses, not all of which are strictly nutritional or romantic. This physics study makes thoughtful, practical use of the substance. Localization of Breakage Points in Knotted Strings by Peter Piransky, Sandor Cassis, Giovanni Dietler, Jacques Dubochet, and André Stasiak, published in the New Journal of Physics in 2001. The authors explain why they used cooked spaghetti. Fishing line breakage was so fast that from one image to another, we observed a complete conversion from an intact tight knot to completely broken fishing line. Therefore, we decided to study breaking of knots tied on cooked spaghetti. Since cooked spaghetti has a much smaller Young's modulus, the process of breaking is relatively slow, and we could register several hundred images from the apparition of an initial crack until the final breaking. However, cooked spaghetti may behave differently from fishing lines. What the psychoanalyst says, your gut says. With improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Some psychoanalysts can find meaning in the most ordinary-seeming bits of your life. Some discern it even in your intestinal rumblings. There's a technical name for those digestive sounds. Borborygmi. Several published studies tell how to interpret people's gut feelings, how to translate those borborygmi into common everyday words. In 1984, Professor Dr. Christian Müller of L'Hôpital de Serie in Prilly, Switzerland, published a report called New Observations on Body Organ Language in the journal Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics. Müller paraphrases a 19 essay by someone named Villener that concludes that the phenomenon generally known as borborygmi must be regarded as cryptogrammatically encoded body signals that could be interpreted with the help of special apparatus. Muller laments that Wilner's attempts to follow up on his theory were thwarted by the defects of recording techniques at that time. Happily, Muller himself had access to later, better equipment. 
We have been trying at our clinic since 1980 to combine electromesenterography with spindles allomograph and in addition to use digital transformation for a quantitative analysis of the curves via computer. Muller reveals his greatest interpretive triumph. The presence of a negative transference situation was not difficult to deduce from the following sequence. Rho, P, Le, Mi, Lo. The following translation is certainly an appropriate rendering. Rotten pig, leave me alone. Of course, it's a lovely piece of deadpan, intentional nonsense. Nonsense that, I am told, was swallowed whole by some readers, and perhaps also by some psychiatry journal editors. Professor Dr. Christian Muller is a person of deadpan sensibility. Professor Dr. Christian Muller's professional peers, however, are in some cases probably not persons of deadpan sensibility. A few years after Professor Dr. Christian Muller's bogus paper on borborygmi, a Montreal psychoanalyst named Guy de Silva published several apparently quite serious papers about the psychoanalytical significance of borborygmi. The most accessible of these papers, in my view anyway, these being Guy de Silva's Borborygmi papers, the most accessible is the one called Borborygmi as Markers of Psychic Work During the Analytic Session, a Contribution to Freud's Experience of Satisfaction and to Beyond's Idea about the Digestive Model for the Thinking Apparatus. This professionally dense monograph appeared in a 1990 issue of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. That title, Borborygmi as Markers of Psychic Work During the Analytic Session, a Contribution to Freud's Experience of Satisfaction and to Beyond's Idea about the Digestive Model for the Thinking Apparatus, mentions the names of two of the psychotherapeutic world's big intellectual stars. Freud is Sigmund Freud, the psychoanalysis pioneer who lived in Vienna, Austria. Bion is Wilfred Ruprecht Bion, director of the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis in the 1950s and later president of the British Psychoanalytical Society. Guy de Silva digested a little Freud together with a little Bion. De Silva writes, Borborygmi may signal the process and acquisition of new thoughts, symbolization, and the free associations derived from Borborygmi often provide the key to understanding of the session by linking the verbal flow of ideas to the underlying sensory and affective experience, thereby providing a moment of truth. Within the primitive maternal transference, Borborygmi are often accompaniments to the fantasy or hallucination of being fed by the analyst. Another of Guy de Silva's studies is called Le modèle alimentaire dans la théorie de la pensée de Billon, suivi d'une application de cet modèle dans l'analyse d'un patient. I won't repeat that title. Pardon my French. The thing appeared in 1992 as part of a publication called Symposium of the Société Psychoanalytique de Montréal. Again, pardon my French. The name Guy de Silva, or Guy de Silva, may be familiar to you, or familiar to someone you know, as the star of hundreds of psychologically gut-wrenching films, 
among them Beyond Reality 3, The Lube Guy, Attack of the Killer Dildos, and Pornomatic 2000. But Guy da Silva, or Guy da Silva, the actor, and Guy da Silva, or Guy da Silva, the psychoanalyst, are not the same person, no matter how similarly stimulating their work may be. Not as far as I know, anyway. You have been listening, if you have been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about, visit our website at improbable.com. I'll stop pausing between words. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Jean Burko Gleason, Chris Katsapas, Kishore Hari, Bruce Petschek, and Ben Lilly lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shetler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petschek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we will look at something or other. Yeah, uh, until then. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>